Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Over the last few weeks, the U.S. and U.K. conducted military strikes in Yemen after repeated attacks by a group called the Houthis on U.S. allied ships in the Red Sea. The operations are part of a more widespread escalation in the Middle East since the onset of the Israel-Hamas war. Yemen has been embroiled in a decade-long civil war between the Houthis and Yemen's internationally recognized government. The recent events led President Biden to redesignate the Houthis as a global terrorist group. So who are they? What's the context of the recent attacks? And what's at stake for the U.S. and Yemen right now? I'm joined by former CIA Director John Brennan, who served in that position from 2013 to 2017. A longtime national security official, he also served as Chief Counterterrorism Advisor to President Obama, Deputy Executive Director of the CIA under President George W. Bush, and was Station Chief in Saudi Arabia for the CIA. Director Brennan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Preet. So let's start, let's start at the beginning, because it's very complicated, and, and things in the Middle East get increasingly complicated and fraught. Simplest question I can ask you, who are the Houthis? Well, the Houthis are a, a tribe in the northernmost part of Yemen, and uh, they are located along the border with Saudi Arabia. And for many years, they were very independent, and they didn't want to listen to the central government in Yemen. And they built up a military capability of their own, and they were the dominant tribe uh, in that area. And uh, Yemen's history has been racked with conflict basically over the last 50 plus years, if not longer. And the Houthis, um, over time, uh, generally expanded their, their range of influence and control of Yemen. But it's, it's a group that is based on the tribe called the Houthis. The name that they now have, the technical name is Ansar Allah, which means supporters of God. And uh, they are um, of the Shia faith. It's a sect of Shiism called Zaydism. And for many years now, they have received support from Iran, as well as uh, close cooperation with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. You mentioned they developed their own independent military capability. How would you describe it? What's the scope of their ability? And then we'll get into what they've been doing recently. 
Well, for many years, they were building up their own capabilities, not just in terms of, you know, small arms and weapons, uh, but also had artillery and tanks. But their their power uh, really significantly increased um, following the Arab Spring um, and then into the 2014-2015 time period when they basically took over large swaths of North Yemen, uh, the northern part of Yemen, and also the capital of Sana'a. And they were able then to uh, seize a lot of the weaponry of the, the Yemeni government. And they've developed a lot of capability as a result of Iranian support. They make their own munitions, uh, but they also receive a very critical support from Iran in terms of missile components. So they have all types of, of weapons uh, in terms of ground weapons, as well as uh, drones, uh, aerial drones, uh, seaborne drones, uh, anti-ship missiles, uh, cruise missiles. Uh, so it's they basically operate as a as a nation state in terms of their capability, uh, but they are not recognized at all as uh, being the government of Yemen. Could you describe and explain what interest Iran has in supporting the Houthis? Well, there has been many, many uh, centuries of tension between uh, Shia Iran, or Persia, and Sunni uh, Saudi Arabia, which is the heartland of Sunni Islam. And given that the Zaydis are uh, co-religionists of the Iranian Shia, uh, the Iranians have provided support to the Zaydis and to the Houthis as a means of putting pressure on Saudi Arabia. So for several years, uh, the Houthis were in direct conflict with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia went into uh, parts of uh, northern Yemen, uh, and there was a, you know, a conflict that went on uh, for quite some time and with exchange of fire across the border. But Iran, I think, sees uh, that it's their obligation to support various uh, Shia groups, uh, such as Ansar Allah, the Houthis, uh, Hezbollah, but also it's a way to uh, put pressure on some of their regional rivals, such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's why they've uh, provided support with money, with weapons, with expertise, with training, uh, as well as with encouragement. So they have been attacking by drone and otherwise, using this capability that you've described, uh, U.S. allied ships in the Red Sea. Why are they doing that? Well, uh, they've done it uh, before, uh, years past. They have, ever since they were able to expand their presence in the north of Yemen and their control along the, the seacoast there of the Red Sea, uh, they have the capability to launch attacks uh, from that seacoast, uh, which is right at the southern end of the Red Sea, uh, where a lot of the international shipping goes. Right. So they have the wherewithal more recently. Yes. And so what has happened now as a result of the conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas, and Hamas is also one of the um, the benefactors of, or the recipients of Iranian aid, uh, Iran will support these various groups uh, in the region in an effort uh, to uh, assert itself against its rivals, whether it be Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia or Israel. And so uh, just like we've seen Hezbollah launching attacks across northern Israel in support and in solidarity with Hamas, the Houthis are doing the same thing against uh, commercial shipping, against U.S. shipping. They've also sent uh, missiles uh, toward Israel. So I I'm sure they're doing this uh, partly as a result of their own interest in supporting uh, Hamas against Israel because the Houthis, uh, just like uh, many other the is Islamist groups, uh, are implacably opposed to the state of Israel. But also, I think it's the result of strong Iranian encouragement as a way to put additional pressure on, on the United States and, and the West.
Yeah, I, I believe one of the principal tenets of the Houthis is both death to America and death to Israel, right? Yes, uh, they they basically have taken on the Iranian mantra of uh, death to both of those uh, countries. Right. Could you describe the level of concern the U.S. should have or the global community should have about these attacks in the Red Sea and how much it's disrupting the supply chain or other types of commerce? Well, first of all, it, it presents a significant uh, security threat to these vessels in terms of the personnel on board and sinking these these vessels. Uh, so that is something, given that this, the Red Sea, and it goes then through the Babel Mandeb in the southern part of the Red Sea, that's where a lot of the international shipping takes place, global supply chains. And uh, as a result of these Houthi attacks, uh, a lot of that international shipping has uh, rerouted itself uh, around the, the southern coast of, of Africa, increasing the costs of the shipping as well as delays. So it, it presents a real threat to international navigation and waterways. Uh, and so I think the United States, along with uh, other uh, countries that feel as though they need to support that international navigation, have decided to take action as a way to degrade Houthi capabilities. But I think the Houthis are quite determined and uh, they will continue to uh, carry out these attacks as long as they have those capabilities. Are these strikes effective? Can they be effective? Are they more symbolic or are they tactically wise and smart? Thankfully, the, the U.S. Navy has been able to um, defeat a number of these attacks by shooting down uh, some of right. these. As they're systems. happening. As they're happening, yeah, yeah. in real time. Uh, so they, they could be quite devastating uh, if we didn't have the sophisticated defensive uh, mechanisms and capabilities that we have in place. But uh, some ships uh, have been hit and disabled. But uh, the Houthis have an array of capabilities. Uh, they have the seaborne drones, which is, they take these small watercraft, uh, load them with explosives, and then remotely pilot them uh, toward ships. So it, it's a real threat. Um, again, it, it can disable ships, it can kill personnel aboard ships, uh, and again, it can just disrupt the flow of, of goods and, and people uh, through the, uh, the Red Sea. And do you think the, the strikes will continue at the current pace? Do you think they will accelerate? Well, uh, the Houthis um, have a number of missile systems that are mobile, and they've tried to move them away from the uh, the coastline and, and, and to hide them. The U.S. and others uh, have taken strikes against them. So some of these Houthi capabilities have been degraded. They still, I'm sure, retain uh, quite a bit. Uh, they can do a lot just by putting together, you know, sort of ad hoc systems uh, so I, I don't think these strikes are, are going to deter the Houthis from carrying out strikes, but what they will do is reduce the uh, Houthis' wherewithal to conduct these attacks against uh, ships in the Red Sea. Are the Houthis doing this in part to increase their own popularity within Yemen by, by showing solidarity with Hamas? It's a good point because Yemen is still racked with internal conflict. And uh, most of southern Yemen are individuals of the Sunni faith, and Al-Qaeda um, is uh, active in, in Yemen. Uh, so during the, the 2011 to 2017, 2018 time period, there, were, there was a real battle going on. It was like three factions. It was the Houthis in the north. It was the central government, which is located in Sana'a. And then in the south, it was Al-Qaeda in the Raven Peninsula. Uh, and the, the Houthis built up a lot of their capabilities in order to go against uh, their rivals, uh, domestic rivals. 
So one of the things that the Houthis are going to, have to be concerned about is that there are still factions inside of Yemen. Uh, the, the government of Yemen right now is located in Aden, in the southern part of, of Yemen. Uh, there is still an element of Al-Qaeda as well as ISIS. Uh, so I think the Houthis have to be mindful that the more the capabilities are degraded, the less able they are to withstand any type of potential counterattacks by their Yemeni uh, adversaries. Uh, so uh, this is one of the things that I think they have to be, uh, you know, careful about. What's the Saudi role in all of this at the moment? Well, the, the Saudis mentioned for uh, several years were engaged in direct uh, battles and conflict with uh, the Houthis and with the, the northern Yemeni elements. And we refer to them as the Houthis, but the Houthis are not a very large tribe in the north of Yemen, but they were able to uh, make alliances with a number of the other tribes in the uh, northern part of Yemen. And so they become much larger than the, the Houthi tribe itself. And there's this northern element uh, in Yemen that were engaged in pitched battles with the Saudis. The Saudis for many, many years have felt that, you know, Yemen has been a, a real problem and they've devoted a lot of resources, uh, military strikes and others. Uh, their concern right now is not having the conflict that started on October 7th expand and engulf the region itself. And that's why Saudi Arabia, they didn't condemn the U.S. attacks against the, the Houthis, uh, but they did express uh, serious concerns about the potential spread. So what they don't want to do is to have a an active conflict um, erupt on their southern border, because again, they, they are fearful that in light of the strong sympathy uh, for Hamas, as well as the Palestinian cause, that exists in the Arabian Peninsula and Saudi Arabia. And what they don't want is for you know the United States to be involved in a conflict with those who are supportive of the, the Palestinian people. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that on prior occasions, the Houthis have been bold enough to engage in certain kinds of attacks in the U.S. and, and maybe an ally or two engaged in military strikes. And then, as I understand it, those, those activities by the Houthis stopped. Is there anything from that experience that informs us or gives us a lesson for the current experience? Yeah, the, the Houthis have conducted attacks against Saudi Arabia. They conducted attacks not too long ago against uh, uh, industrial sites uh, in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Uh, so they have quite a range. Uh, and sometimes uh, if they are counterattacked, uh, you know, it, they, they don't follow through with uh, follow-on attacks. Uh, sometimes they, they do things to send signals uh, to their adversaries that they have these capabilities. So I, I think uh, Secretary Blinken and the Biden administration have been very careful to say that they don't really expect these strikes to uh, lead to uh, Houthis just ceasing the attacks. They're, they're hoping it's going to be a deterrent because the Houthis are going to suffer consequences. But I, I do think that the continuation of the, the tragedy in Gaza and the continued loss of life there, and the fact that the Iranians continue to do whatever they can to put additional pressure on Israel and Israel supporters, and namely the United States, uh, I can see the Houthis, Hezbollah, and Hamas continuing to carry out uh, these, uh, these violent strikes. So there's another sort of area of confusion regarding U.S. policy towards the Houthis. And if, if so, if memory serves, there are various designations that the U.S. government can make with respect to terrorist organizations, right? One is the designation of global terrorist group. Another is designated foreign terrorist organization. I, I think to the lay ear, those sound like the same thing. They're not the same thing. 
Could you explain the seesawing back and forth uh, over the course of the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations of this designation and why it's important? Just sort of explain to us what that means and why it's changed over time. Well, um, groups uh, can be designated according to U.S. law to be foreign terrorist organizations uh, that then um, trigger a number of, of actions uh, by the United States. Uh, sometimes individuals uh, are listed on the foreign terrorist uh, list uh, as a, individuals who cannot engage in any type of activities that the U.S. has some control over. But the, the Houthis or Ansar Allah uh, were listed as a foreign terrorist organization uh, under in the waning days of the Trump administration. And then uh, shortly after the Biden administration came into office, uh, they, they delisted them. And the reason why uh, was that when a foreign terrorist organization controls certain territory, the United States is prohibited by law from providing any type of assistance uh, or support to that area. Uh, we've had these challenges in places like Somalia and other areas when there are terrorist groups that control certain areas. It prevents humanitarian assistance and aid from going in. And, and given the Yemeni civil war and conflict, a large portion of Yemen, particularly in the north, were suffering. You know, it was a humanitarian disaster, famine, uh, uh, health issues, other types of things, disease. And so the Biden administration delisted the Houthis in order to enable, by law, the provision of assistance to the Yemeni people. Um, there's a port uh, on the coast of, of Yemen, on the Red Sea, called Hudaydah. And that is the main port where uh, goods, uh, food, uh, grain, other types of things are brought into Yemen. And as long as the Houthis were in control of that area and the Hudaydah port, the United States was prohibited from allowing any type of U.S.-affiliated organizations from providing assistance there. And so that listing was uh, lifted uh, so that aid could go into Yemen. But in light of what has happened in the recent months, uh, the Houthis now have been put back onto that uh, list of foreign terrorist organizations as a way, again, to put some additional pressure on, on the Houthis uh, in, in Yemen. All right, what may be a dumb question. If it's the case that a, a foreign terrorist organization controls a port, isn't it you know, separate and apart from the legal constraints, why would it make sense to send humanitarian assistance to people who need it through a port controlled by the terrorist organization, just as a practical matter? Well, again, it's very similar to what has happened in Somalia for uh, a number of, of years. These terrorist organizations or groups like Houthis, uh, they do control the ports, they control some of the roads. Uh, but there are millions of people who live in these areas uh, uh, and who are starving and who are in desperate need of, of health care, medical assistance. and Right, no, no. I, I guess what I'm asking is, if the bad guys control the port, how do you get the humanitarian aid to the people who need it, given their control of the port? In other words, how do you, as a pragmatic matter, get that done, putting aside whatever the legal restraints are? Well, if there are ways to get assistance in uh, and bypass these ports, these roads, uh, these airfields, whatever else, you do that. But if there's no other option, and a lot of members of the of the Houthi movement or the Ansar Allah are not engaged in these strikes, they have maybe they're they're toll collectors, maybe they are are port um, you know officials or whatever. 
but they do have a, a bureaucratic system, uh, the Houthis. Uh, and so what you try to do is, if there's no other way around it, I think, the, again, the Biden administration felt as though there's a way to bring in aid to the Yemeni people without providing uh, support to Houthi military uh, and terrorist capabilities. And that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to balance the equities of trying to retain, you know, pressure against these groups. But the Houthis for a number of years, once, you know, the, the conflict with Saudi Arabia had died down, they weren't engaged in these types of, of activities on an ongoing basis. Once in a while, they would shoot off a missile against Saudi Arabia or against UAE, but they weren't an active international terrorist organization. But clearly in the last several months, with the, the tempo of the strikes against the shipping in the Red Sea, they fully qualify for a foreign terrorist organization. Is it time to update that law? so that American officials and military officials don't have to engage in such an exquisite balance between fighting off and deterring terrorist organizations and providing humanitarian aid? Well, um, it might, might be. There should need to be, I think, I would provision. support you in that effort, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a tough balance because you don't want to do anything that's going to enhance the, the, the standing and the strength of a terrorist organization. Right. But you want to give some flexibility to le leadership in the U.S., do you not? Yes. And during the Obama administration, uh, we allowed aid to go into Somalia, despite the fact that there were uh, terrorist groups that were controlling ports of, of Somalia. And we, we had to make an exception because the Somali people were starving. And even though some of the roads were controlled by the terrorist organizations, uh, many of them affiliated with uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, this is something that the Obama administration felt was imperative in terms of trying to prevent the starvation of, of millions of, of innocents who happen to live in these areas. So here's, here's the most important, I think, issue and question that ordinary Americans worry about, and that is the expansion of hostilities in the Middle East beyond what just began as you know, a war between Hamas and Israel. We're worried about Lebanon, Hezbollah, Iran in these proxy fights, the Houthis now. What's your assessment about the likelihood of being able to contain this, uh, at least to what the current conflict sort of regions are, minimizing those, reducing those versus worrying about a, a, you know, a greater expansion. I, I think people are worried that the U.S. is going to be drawn in in some very significant way. How do you see that risk? Well, I think it's a, a serious concern. But at the same time, Iran, which is really the instigator of a lot of these uh, attacks, uh, and they're the ones that empowered Hamas to carry out these horrific attacks on October the 7th, and they've encouraged Hezbollah and, and the Houthis to conduct strikes, at the same time, um, Hezbollah has really held back. Uh, Hezbollah has tremendous military capability in terms of missiles and rockets, and they could really do quite a bit more than they're doing now. And I think it, it suggests that Iran is turning up the heat, but at this point, they are not uh, interested in having a, a broad conflict. Iran doesn't want to have a, a, a war with, with the United States, doesn't want to get into a conflict with Israel. Uh, if that happens, there would be certainly a tremendous exchange uh, of uh, weapons, uh, strikes. But we do see that Iran recently hit targets uh, inside of Pakistan. The Pakistanis just retaliated overnight against some Iranian areas. So the, the more that we have these uh, incidents of 
strikes uh, going across uh, sovereign borders, I think the prospects of a broader regional conflict go up and because there could be an escalatory spiral that maybe was not intended on the part of the Iranians. But uh, some of these strikes can lead to you know, more deaths uh, and just uh, increase the, uh, the interest in retaliatory uh, attacks. So here's my final dumb question. If Iran truly and sincerely and authentically doesn't want to get into a, an expanded conflict or a war with the U.S., why, why don't they tell the Houthis to knock it off? Well, they want to ratchet up the pressure on the United States. Right. But, just not, not, but not so much so as to cause a direct conflict. It, it seems a dangerous game, isn't it? Well, it is a dangerous game, but the, the Iranians have been quite, I think, clever and cunning in many respects uh, because they're using these proxies uh, to go against uh, their, their adversaries. Iran is still very much a, a revolutionary uh, state. Uh, they believe that it's important to be able to support a lot of these groups uh, in the Middle East. Uh, in some respects, it's a counter to their Sunni adversaries, but Hamas is a, is a Sunni organization, but they have supported Hamas with money, weapons, training, and other types of things because they're implacably opposed to the state of Israel. Uh, so they're using these pressure points against their regional rivals, whether it be Saudi Arabia or uh, Israel, as well against their global rivals, the United States. So it is a dangerous game they're, they're playing. And again, this can further escalate. Uh, we could see something just you know in the next couple of days that uh, will erupt. Uh, I'm particularly concerned about uh, the Lebanese uh, theater, uh, where Hezbollah, again, retains significant capabilities that would really could be uh, overwhelming of, of some of the Israeli uh, northern air defenses. Uh, but Israel has the capability to really um, just destroy a lot of Hezbollah's capabilities. And Hezbollah doesn't want to destroy everything because they have their their uh, Lebanese rivals that they have to remain uh, strong against. So it, it's, a, it's a chess game in many respects. Uh, but I, I do think the events of October 7th and the months since then uh, really have increased the, the prospects that we could see the Middle East once more engulfed in some type of larger regional conflict that would put the United States in direct confrontation with uh, not just the Houthis, but other regional actors. You make a very good point that this is a very fluid situation. Should I should make sure to note for the audience that you and I are having this conversation on Thursday morning. January 18th, and anything can happen at any time. With that, sir, I know your, your time is valuable. John Brennan, thanks for being on the show, and thank you for all your service to the country. Thanks, Preet, and thank you for doing this podcast. I think your, your continued interest in these issues and trying to inform the American public is really quite important, and so uh, I thank you for that. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider, Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. 
The technical director is David Tatashore. The editorial producer is Noah Ozilai. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Jake Kaplan, Nat Wiener, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.